Greetings to each of you this evening. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being gathered here to worship, to focus on you, and as we contemplate and um, consider your will for this church going forward, I just ask that you would direct our steps tonight and throughout this weekend in ways that honor you, build your kingdom, and deepen our love both for you and for each other and for your kingdom in the process. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54. I just want to read several verses here and make a few comments. Uh, this, is, this chapter is sandwiched between two much more familiar chapters in Isaiah. Chapter 53, the prophecy of Christ, and chapter 55, of the uh, compassion of God. And uh, there's just a lot of familiar verses in chapter 55 as well. I'm going to read the first eight verses of, of chapter 54, and this is in the context of God's covenant with Israel using the metaphor of marriage and barrenness and the fact that Israel forsake her husband and is barren, but then the promise of something more to come. And so um, I want to read the first eight verses together from the English Standard Version. Sing, O barren one. Who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will you remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the Lord, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I read these eight verses to give a little bit more context, but really what I want to focus on is verse 2. And the reason I want to focus on this is nearly 26 years ago, next month, is when I was ordained, and Chris Diener preached a preordination sermon during that week using this verse as a text. And it just has always stuck with me, and I think it's just a good way to, to think about the ordination process and so forth. Enlarge the place of your tent. So in Middle Eastern times, when someone got married, they just simply added on to their house. And so he's using that metaphor of a household enlarging that place, enlarging the footprint that we have, enlarging the span of influence that we have and so forth. Um, 
but that we need to be willing to enlarge our world, if you will. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out or stretch out the curtains. If you're going to enlarge it, if you're going to keep things dry, you have to stretch it out. If you've ever had a tent, you don't want it sagging if it rains because will, you will get wet, but you stretch that out. Um, and in a more literal way, we don't always like to be stretched, but it's good for us to be stretched at times as well. Uh, it says, do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. If you're going to have a bigger tent, if you're going to enlarge your realm of influence, your impact, you have to lengthen those cords and then strengthen your stakes. The bigger the structure, the deeper the stakes have to go. And so being grounded in, in truth and in reality. And like I say, I know that that's not the context of, of this passage but I do think it has application to the church um, and to us as individuals, allowing the Lord to enlarge our sphere of, of influence, stretching us in good ways, lengthening us, and deepening those stakes in the ground that we, and, and what we believe in and, and so forth. And so that's just a few thoughts um, for us to contemplate and you may want to think about this a bit more over the weekend as you have opportunity as well. Very grateful to have Tim and Regina Yoder here with us this evening. Um, Tim is a pastor at Harmony Christian Fellowship in um, Chestertown, or in the Chestertown, Maryland area on the Eastern Shore. And, um, and we're just grateful to have them here, and he has consented to bring the message. Uh, for those of you that may not be aware of this, Tim is Wayne's nephew. And so um, there's some Franchoff here in the audience as well. And uh, I have learned to know, appreciate, learned to know and appreciate Tim and Regina over the years. And uh, I'm excited to have them here this weekend and to allow him to share what the Lord has laid on his heart. So Tim, if you want to come forward, I'd like to have a word of prayer with you before I turn it over to you. Father, thank you so much that Tim can be here with us this evening. I pray that you would guide him with your Holy Spirit, anoint his lips, anoint his words. I pray that you would communicate through him what you have for each one of us. And as we as listeners, I pray that we could be attuned to your spirit and we can receive with joy what you have for us through Brother Tim. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good evening. It is uh, a privilege to be here with you, particularly you having a connection with us as far as uh, ADC affiliation. But um, it's good to be here for your weekend ordination event. And Dave did a bit of introduction, um, so I suppose it's not necessary to give any further introduction. You probably know who we are, Uncle Wayne, Uncle Andy. Um, and, uh, and getting ready for, for this weekend, I, I couldn't help but do a bit of reminiscing about Catlett, Virginia. Hmm. 
as a young boy, we lived at Aroda, Virginia. And um, we would often visit Uncle Andy and, and family here in Catlett, Virginia. And um, I have fond memories of those times with my cousins here at, at Catlett. And I could probably tell you stories about my cousins that probably would be better left untold. I, I clearly remember a high-tech game that we used to play when we would come over to Uncle Andy's. And uh, it was a high-tech game called Andy Over. You remember that? <laughs> you all know what that is. I, I don't think our church people would know what Andy Over is. Um, if you know what that is, that says you're not so young. <laughs> You know, it was, we'd stay, stand on one side of the house, and there'd be a couple guys standing on the other side of the house, and we'd throw a ball back and forth, and we'd yell, Andy, over when you throw it. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that game. We didn't need these little gadgets, but um, just, it was simple, but it was fun. Alvin Miller. You probably don't realize the impact that you had in my life at a very young age. I recall a Sunday school class at the Nisley Church, probably back when I was, I'm going to guess, eight, nine years old, something like that. And uh, as I remember, it was an all-boys class, and Alvin was the teacher of that class. I knew you wouldn't remember it. But I recall it vividly. And um, the Sunday school lesson that Sunday was about the Lord's return. And, the, and Alvin was emphasizing the importance of being ready uh, for that return and, and not getting hung up on how that was going to happen but simply to be ready. And as an eight and nine-year-old, it made a great impression on me. And um, those were the days of the strong pre and awe thinking and um, emphasis. And it brought a very balanced perspective to an eight or nine-year-old's mind. To the point where even to this day, I will not get into any kind of eschatology argument with anybody, and you can blame Alan for that. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. <laughs> I remember that just so vividly yet. My wife, Regina, here, she, she taught school here a couple years, and so... While she was doing that, there were a few occasions that I would come down during our dating years. And uh, I remember feeling just a bit of resentment towards y'all when you asked her to teach that second year. Because, you see, I had other plans that <laughs> got interrupted. And I want you to know that I don't hold that resentment toward y'all anymore. <laughs> I'm okay with that now. There was then a few weddings that we were here for, and of late, um, funerals that brought us into the community. So 
I'm glad to be here for something different. Um, even an ordination. One of the things that I desire and I want and I believe it to be so is that God will be present, is present with us here, in us, and I would just like to pause and ask him to be here for us. Will you join me in that prayer? God, we just thank you for this moment in time. We give this time to you, and we want you to receive the honor and glory. I pray that you would invade our lives and, and this place um, in preparation for this weekend. And as only you can, we invite you to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight I'd like to speak to the validity of an ordination. Now I know that your ministers and I know that Uncle Wayne has been preaching um, some sermons in preparation for this, so I'm not sure what I'll tread on that's been spoken already and what I won't, but uh, I'm okay with that. The, the question that we might wrestle with at a time like this is what makes an ordination that it is valid and that it is biblical? And those are two particular components that I feel are so vital to an event like this weekend. Now, for something to be biblical, it has to originate with God. That's very important. And since the Bible is God's written word, and we believe that it is the inspiration through the Holy Spirit, we then explore it for the larger story that's written, which we, which we discover example, uh, an application for instruction in life. Now, we all know that the Bible doesn't uh, specify thou shalt do an ordination this way um, or after this manner, but what we then do is we go into Scripture and we look for, for examples of how the early church the early church, and uh, particularly through the Apostle Paul's letters, where we find examples of how it was done. And I would suggest that because the Bible does not say, thou shalt do it this way, that there's flexibility and there's, there's tolerances for a bit of variation in the methods and means that we then implement um, within certain perimeters that God is okay with. I would tell you, and I'll be very honest with you, I'll just simply tell you this. There's elements of an ordination that I don't like. <laughs> Maybe speaking, how one is one of those. I don't like the suspense of the lot. I don't like the tensions of uncertainty that go with the lot. I don't like the struggles that so often accompany being ordained or not being ordained. I don't like the lack of preparation that we provide for those who are called to minister and to leadership positions. And on and on I could go. But I will say this. Having been called 
to minister by God through the church via the lot. It has been the greatest source of affirmation that I could latch on to. And believe me when I say that I needed lots of affirmation. And I'll tell you why. Why? I grew up as a PK. I, I remember my dad's ordination out of Rhoda, Virginia at a very young age. And I couldn't tell you what year it was or how old I was. But I, I remember sitting on that front bench and recall the evening. Um, growing up a PK then, I saw the nasty side of people issues in life as a, as a, as a adolescent and as a youth. Um, I just saw things that I didn't like. And so I needed something to latch on to because literally it was the last thing I wanted to be. And that was a preacher. You know, I didn't have the clarity of a, of a pre-ordination calling. You know, you hear these stories where people knew they were going to be ordained. That's okay. That's good. If God gives you that affirmation, that's good. I didn't have that. My affirmation came from the church. What I probably had, and I would describe it this way, that I was a PK, and I had this foreboding feeling that, huh, look out. Somewhere it's going to happen. You know, it, the odds just weren't in my favor. So I needed something to really latch on to, to give me stability. Um, and if you've ever found yourself needing to be or do something that you don't want to do in the worst kind of way, you'll maybe a little, understand a little bit where I was coming from. I'm glad to say this. That with time, and it took me some time, I was able to let go of that, and I was able to let God. And that was a, a critical moment. There are three vital components that I'd like to speak about that I believe that are necessary for a valid ordination, uh, a valid biblical ordination. Um, and those three are this, and I'll speak to, into each one uh, tonight a bit. And that is the Holy Spirit's involvement, the God's personal involvement, and then the church's involvement. In the early church, the the early church did not have the Bible as we know it. They had Hebrew manuscripts. They had the Jewish culture. Um, but most importantly, they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I wonder if we really know what that's like. I really think that we should be no less dependent than they were on the Holy Spirit to, to guide us, to direct us in life, and particularly at times like these events 
The biggest difference that we have, and I believe that it is an advantage, is that we have the inspired Word of God. And that, that is huge. And I'm not sure we grasp that. Um, and sometimes I fear that we've semi-retired the Holy Spirit because of our, our, our deep reliance on the inspired Word of God. And I'm wondering if there isn't a way that we can balance that better where we don't kind of shunt off the Holy Spirit to the side until a moment like this, and then we try to wake him up and say, I need you now. Uh, do your work now. I don't think God likes that. It's the dependence on the Holy Spirit for all times that the Bible tells us uh, the Holy Spirit is for. In John 14, 16 and 17, it says this, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. Now, does that sound like something dormant? To me, that sounds like it's very active. It has a role to play. You know, it's interesting that at the request of Jesus to his Father, I believe we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's a gift that God gives us. Now imagine with me for a moment, Jesus becomes Lord of your life. And so Jesus turns to his Father and he requests that he give you the Holy Spirit into your life. And at that moment, you either have it or you don't. And I believe that when God gives you the Holy Spirit, you have it. The world, like this, these verses say, don't get it. They don't have it because they haven't experienced that. And so God meant the Holy Spirit to be active in our life so that at a time like this, you're in tune with him and you hear him. His presence is already in your life. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Notice that it says the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is not an independent entity of itself. And the Holy Spirit relies on God for the messages that he conveys. It's what it tells us right here. And so what he receives from a God who cannot lie, who cannot die, and who cannot fail, is where that message comes from. And then, therefore, the only thing that is left in that message is truth that the Holy Spirit conveys to us. You know that the Holy Spirit is intended to glorify Jesus Christ? And I get a little bit 
perturbed when I hear people emphasizing and glorifying the Holy Spirit above Jesus Christ and God. That happens sometimes, and I don't think that that's the role that God intended for the Holy Spirit. I'd like to just simply say this to you. This weekend, depend on the Holy Spirit and not just yourself. Secondly, let's talk about God's personal touch. Any ordination that does not involve some method of God's involvement, of God's choosing, I believe I can dare say that it's not valid. You know, um, in today's world, and, and I did a bit of research to see what's out there. It, it is so easy for anybody to just go online, fill out a form, and they're recognized as a legal minister. That's how simple it is. And I really think that cheapens the role, and I think it cheapens the sanctity of a biblical ordination. Now, I know we don't do that, and I hope we never do. I had to think of Saul before he was Paul in Acts 9. And you know well the story of, of Saul. And he was, he was on a mission to eliminate the, the Christians. And if God wouldn't have stopped him the way he did on the road to Damascus, he probably would have pretty much wiped out the Christians. He was highly successful in his mission. And I believe that he really thought that he was on a mission for God. The problem was that it was Saul's mission, not God's mission. And it's about the time that you think that you're really doing something for God, that he throws a curveball at you that just leaves you gaping. I'm going to read Acts 9. I'm just going to kind of cut into the account of, of Acts 9. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. And it says this, this was after God knocked Saul down and, and blinded him. And then in verse 10, it gives us the account of Ananias. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer 
for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Saul was a man in control. Suddenly, he finds himself in a situation where he has no control. And it's fascinating to see how God did that, simply through blindness. Something so simple and yet so profound, God stops us in ways that we don't expect. You know, there are times when God has brought me into a state of helplessness. And I believe he does that to us, where we don't have control, where we're not in control. And I tend to be the kind of guy that likes to be in control. And it's at those moments that God brings us to that we turn to God and depend on him. Those become our deepest connecting moments with God. And so radical Saul, he finds himself praying through the very Jesus that he was rejecting. I find it interesting that when God was talking to Ananias, he said, behold, he's praying. <laughs> like God, you know, was enjoying it maybe. You know, it's in our most out-of-control moments that God is still in control. And it's at those times when we let go and we let God have control that he can then do his will. And it was at this critical moment in Saul's life, it's all Saul had to turn back to. Even Ananias, and I, I like Ananias. <laughs> He's so human. He's so typical us. Question God's instructions to it. Sometimes we question God and his logic. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense. Why do you want me to do this? I can't wrap my mind around that. But I find it inspirational what Ananias did. When God didn't make sense, when he questioned God's instructions... When we want the opposite of what God wants, when we want something else to happen, you know, we have a choice to make. Ananias was faced with that choice. And so when Ananias entered the house of Judas where Saul was staying, I think it was about three days or so, he had wrestled with God. He had argued with God. He didn't want to. 
but now he left that all behind him as he placed his hands on Saul and called him Brother Saul. How could he do that? Here was a man that was out to kill him, that probably would have imprisoned him. It was a dangerous man. Would you and I do what Ananias did? There's a message from God to Ananias in verse 15, and he says this. He is a chosen vessel unto me. How can you argue with that? Oh, you can fight. You can resist. But is God ever wrong? You know, we stumble. We fail. We're the ones that make the mistakes, not God. And so God selected Saul to be his minister of his gospel. And then he used the church to affirm God's calling of Saul to be his minister, Paul, and what a minister he was. That's an illustration that when God is involved in choosing, it's very valid. Now, the Apostle Paul himself, he declared this in Galatians 1.1, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that right there is as solid a foundation as you can latch onto for anything in life, but particularly for a weekend like this weekend. And so I see Paul as being very convinced that God had called him to be a minister. And it took me a while to get to that point, but I got there. And there's, there's that affirmation, there's that clarity in God's selection that we have to know. And when we rely on anything else, it's going to leave lots of room for doubt and maybe some second guessing. Maybe that's part of the struggle anyway. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That's a solid anchor. That's a solid foundation. And then thirdly, there's this membership involvement. Now, it seems as though Acts 1 seems to be the model that we kind of duplicate to, to select eligible men from among ourselves uh, to serve in the lot and to be ordained. And Peter, in the presence of 120 uh, disciples, he initiated the replacement of Judas Iscariot uh, as one of the 12 disciples. And it was the, the gathering of these believers that was instrumental in selecting two men as candidates to 
to, to select from, for God to choose from, um, for Judas's replacement. And it was Justice and Matthias. And um, going through that process, Matthias was then chosen to be one of the 12. There's not a lot of lot details that are given in Acts 1, but outstanding is the prayer in verse 24. And this is what they prayed. Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen. This is giving God the freedom to choose, to be involved. In Acts 6, you'll find a, a similar um, selection by um, a large congregant of disciples, and they chose seven for deacon work. You're familiar with that account as well. And then later, as churches were established, um, elders, ministers, deacons um, were often appointed by the leadership and the ordaining by the laying on of hands, and that involved the church body as well. I suppose there are varied methods that can be used in this process, and it can still be biblical. Um, I'm not one to say there's only one way because it doesn't specify, but today the, the church membership is a vital component of that selection that God works through, and God does that to, to select eligible men to be in the lot, and that's, you're all familiar with that. You know, and I, I'm, per, I'm okay with that process. Um, as long as there aren't church politics and manipulations that are part of the scene um, that have the, the chance of impacting the outcome of an ordination. To me, that is so important that we're above that. We're not politics. That has no place in, at a time like this. And so I believe in the importance of membership involvement selecting from among themselves for leadership roles. And I believe that to be a very um, biblical method. Anytime that there's imperfect people involved, and we're all imperfect, any method that is employed has the opportunity for flaws. I think the critical part of our ordination has to do with the method when multiple men are in the lot. Presenting God with a, an un, untainted selection method I think is really important. I think it behooves us to do what we can. We know that God's will will be done. And I'm, I believe it's very important that we don't impede that. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And you can't get around that. That doesn't give any excuse for any manipulations by anybody. 
whether it is leadership or membership. Rather, I believe that it's recognizing the sovereignty of God in matters like this, important matters. We recently, I say recently, it's probably, what did we say, eight, nine months ago, something like that, we had an ordination in our church. And um, I found it very interesting. Um, We had an attendee at our ordination who never saw an ordination process like we did it. And we pretty much used the typical method. And I don't know, there might be some of you older people that would would know um, some of the bond trackers that were um, an older family that was an establishing family in our community. Well, this lady is a Susan Bontrager. And she is married to Enos Bontrager, who is the son of Sam and Tilly Bontrager. And I don't know if that means anything to you or not. (laughs) Probably not. But the interesting thing is that she grew up in the Presbyterian church. And uh, currently, Enos is a member at our church. She is not, but she attends, and she enjoys it. And we, we don't mind that at all. Enos grew up in our church, left the church, went wayward, came back to the Lord. That gives you just a bit of background of who she is. Um, And so approaching this ordination, she didn't know what to expect. And and Enos tried explaining to her how we do this. And you know, it didn't make any sense to her at all. She couldn't visualize it. She couldn't make any sense of it. I remember walking up the aisle after the ordination, just meeting people. And it was after dismissal. And she stopped me in the center aisle with tears in her eyes. And I never saw anybody in such awe of an ordination. Not even Mennonite people. She had never seen anything like it. It was so good for me to hear her expressions of reverence and holiness that she witnessed in the process that she had never seen before. There was no doubt in her mind that God was there, that it was God that chose, that we didn't interfere with God's choosing process. It wasn't about us or the way we done it. I believe it's because she witnessed the movement of God in a way that she had never witnessed before. It was really good to see that. And isn't that what God is all about? The movement of God having the freedom to move as he wills according to his plan for faith Christian fellowship? Isn't that what it's about? It gave me a whole different perspective of a method that I would sooner find fault with. 
and didn't see the value of this biblical method that had become just way too routine. And it took somebody like her to show me the value of it. And so tonight, this weekend, it's my prayer and it's my desire that God would reveal whom he has already selected and chosen to place on your leadership team. Not my will, but thine be done. Is a prayer that every one of us should pray. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be speaking about a call from the Lord. How do we respond when God says, I want you? Hmm. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that we can call you our Father, that you're our God, that you're not way out there, but you're right here, and that you know what's happening this weekend, even before we know. I'm glad we can have that confidence, and I pray that um, you would bless the membership of um, Faith Christian Fellowship, and I pray that you would move among them so that um, you would be honored, and that through this, uh, additional leadership could be provided for the church here. We're going to depend on you, Lord, for your movement uh, and your direction this weekend. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to turn the time over to Dave.